Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. It's my great pleasure and honor to welcome my friend and colleague, Rabbi Larry Hoffman, who is the Barbara and Stephen Friedman Professor of Liturgy, Worship, and Ritual at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute in New York. Widely published, Professor Hoffman has received the National Jewish Book Award not once, but twice. And in 1994, he co-founded Synagogue 2000, which was a trans-denominational project to envision the ideal synagogue as, quote, a moral and spiritual center for the 21st century. Rabbi Hoffman, Larry, if I may, it's a pleasure to have you. It's so good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're one of the great voices on prayer in uh, Judaism today, and so I want to ask you, as a person who sometimes confronts impediments of my own in prayer, I want to ask you your opinion about what, if you had to reduce it to a single cause, what is the greatest impediment to praying or to prayer today in Jewish life? First of all, thanks for the compliment. I think about it all the time, of course. It seems to me, actually, first of all, what's not the greatest impediment, but people think it is. They think it's God. They say they don't believe in God. They don't think anybody's listening up there, and so what's the point of it all? But I think that's actually a mistake. I take them at their word, to be sure, but I think that's not the problem. And the essential problem, I think, has to do with a misunderstanding of what prayer is in its form, and the contract that we have between the people who are providing the prayer experience and people who are coming to it. I think of prayer as an art form. I think of it as the grand art form because it puts together music and drama and uh, It's and almost poetry. cinematic, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fabulous that, when it's done right. Problem is, on our side, I'm talking now as a rabbi, and I think I speak for cantors as well. I don't mean to be just rabbis. Mm-hmm. All the people who are involved, it's an art form that we don't do very well. <laughs> and there's nothing worse than an art form that brings bad, you know? So that's our problem. But the problem of people coming is you don't appreciate an art form unless you suspend your disbelief. Do you go to the opera? Of course. So did you ever go to the opera because you loved the story? No. Who believes that stuff, right? If I said to you, why don't you go, we're going to talk about a demon and a this and a that, you'd say, thank you, I got, I got better things. Go, you go for the tenor and you the go for, You go for the grandness of it all. I mean, Wagner had it right. It's a complete work of art. So I think of prayer as that sort of thing, a complete work of art. But you can only go if you suspend your disbelief. If I paid attention to the story, I wouldn't believe a word of it. But at the end of it, all that music and so on and so forth, I'm crying at the end of it because there's something about the human condition that gets touched. Prayer is an art form that touches the human condition, but you have to enter into it, suspend your disbelief. More than that, you're saying that they have to be met halfway also by the artists, by yes. the, the collaborative team that presents the prayer, yeah. not just from the Middle Ages yeah, and from right. antiquity, but also those who are the purveyors of it. Yes, exactly. The synagogue-goer has to be met halfway by an excellent, yeah. artful Yes. It's a layered art form. It starts with the people who wrote the prayer book and gave you the music. That's the first level of art. Then it's the people who put it all together in the right prayer book and the right script. That's the second level of art. And then there are the people who do it. That's the third level. And the last level is the people who go and participate. You started off by saying, you know, a person might suspect that the reason people feel an impediment to prayer is because of the articulation of a God that if broken down intellectually, they would have to arrive at the conclusion that they don't, or many of them don't believe in. 
And you're saying, no, that's not the issue. Well, uh, what about the argument that it's not belief or disbelief or agnosticism that impedes them? It's more affirmative than that. It's that God, God language, faith-styled words evoke notions of Christianity to them and uh, feels off-putting in a much more affirmative way than mere agnosticism. Well, there's something to that, but that has to do with the way a certain generation was raised. If you're over 45, let's say, you were raised largely in an ethnic Jewish environment, and you have a lot of baggage about the Christian environment around you, and you tend to associate a certain language as Christian. The fact of the matter is most of the Christian language started as Jewish language. <laughs> right. There's someone who talks about a game that Harvard football team plays against Ohio State or something like that, and they say, you know, they lost 55 to nothing, but we've got all the good cheers. <laughs> the problem is that the Christian community got all the good, good cheers, cheers, you know, so we now take the old Jewish language where we say, oh, no, it's Christian, Christian. Grace, that's not a Christian term. That's our term, you know. Theology generally, that's our term. Right, even the good news, even the good news is the Sorotovo. We had it first, so, you know. <laughs> but we, are, we have to reclaim it, and here's why. If you can't say it, you don't know it. And we need a language that can say it, or we don't know it. And, and we have to speak it artfully, is what you're that's saying. Right. You're saying you can't just yeah. drop a term. You can't, you can't. just expect people to you open can't. up a moxa or a prayer book and engage. That's right. People make the mistake of thinking that uh, they don't know something or they don't want to believe something, they can't use the language. I'm saying if you use the language in the right environment, at that moment you believe it. I don't pray because I believe, I believe because I pray. It's an experience. After the fact, I can't believe I was crying in that opera. After the fact, I can't believe that I was moved to, moved to tears or joy in, in, in prayer, but, but, but I was. The, the way you're casting it, it's not even really about arriving at belief. It's, a, it, it's about allowing yourself to be touched and therefore enriched and that somehow yeah. you come out better than you entered. Yeah, that's right. People think that ideas are what we make up, but that's not exactly true. Even in English, we say, it, it struck me. Mm -hmm. It came to me. Right. Idea, the great ideas then hit us. I liken ideas to gifts. You know, you wrap a gift, and when you're finished, what you discover is that the wrapping kind of impinges on what you put inside, mm -hmm. and the wrapping doesn't quite look the same. I consider worship a wrapping. It's a wrapping of ideas, which are the gift. But the gift gets wrapped in worship, which is different than getting wrapped in an academic discourse. And it, it comes out differently. It ends up being different by virtue. It does, absolutely, it does. Right, if you do it well. So it's a, it's a heavy lift for both the synagogue goer and the team, the, the historical team, the actual team, the synagogue yeah. team. When I was younger and I was a rabbinic student, I had this great teacher who was reputed to know absolutely everything, absolutely <laughs> everything. And his name was Dr. Tepfer, Allah fa shalom. He'd come from England, he had his British accent, so you could believe yeah, he knew right. everything. He knew everything right. So at one point, uh, I don't know why, I said to him I wanted to learn Yiddish. I think because I knew my grandmother spoke Yiddish and I'd forgotten it. And I wanted to learn it again. I said to him, can you teach me Yiddish? since he knew everything. And he said to me, Yiddish Hoffman? He said to me, you don't teach Yiddish, you just open your mouth and it comes out. <laughs> well, he was wrong, of course, but that's the attitude people have to prayer. You just open your mouth and it comes out. Right. But actually it doesn't. It's an art form and it takes the people who are involved, each at their own level, to come together and make it work in a group. You know, you've reminded me of what I think is a myth about uh, Winston Churchill, of course, who was known for his quips and his witticisms and his spontaneous wisdom. I and, love uh, Churchill, yeah. Right. Everyone loves Churchill. He's great to quote. The mystique about him was that he was so quick 
and so attuned that all of this came off the top of his head. And uh, this may be equally apocryphal and mythical, but the myth is that, in fact, he would go home and practice his witticisms in front of the mirror, and all that which felt spontaneous yeah. and uh, witty was, in fact, a practiced, highly developed art form. And you're saying that we have to not just receive yeah. the Siddur, yeah. but republish it, reimagine yeah. it, and reproduce it every time. Not just the Siddur. First of all, about the art form, though, it's not, it's not just Churchill, it's every art form. Van Gogh writes to his brother, and I forget how long he says, but he says it took him two days or 5,000 strokes to get the right petal on, on the flower. Right, right, you know, right. he, he didn't just do it. Right. Nobody just does it. Maybe Mozart, they say Mozart could just write the music but I'm not sure about that either. Anyway, back to the prayer book. I don't think the issue is so much the prayer book. I like to say the prayer book isn't really a book. It just looks like a book because it's got two covers on it. <laughs> but actually, we were praying long before anything was written. So it's not just a book. I think of it as a script. It's an ongoing script. It's a master script right. of the Jewish people. And whenever you hold it in your hand, you're interpreting it. So what's really going on is you have a script, and if you don't have the right music, and you don't have the right environment, and you don't have the people sitting in the right way, and you don't have a connection between people, the script falls flat. We rabbis and cantors, we're like directors of this script. And when we do the script right, it's, a, it's an art form that I call a great drama. But it's a drama and not to people, at people, but it involves everybody, you know? So I want to now move to one of the themes that emerges, not just in prayer, but in Judaism writ large, that you have spent a lot of time thinking about. And one of the things that I really appreciate in your thought is that you're willing to confront this polarity that I'm about to lay out, or paradox, or tension, which is the tension between universalism and particularism. We of the reform movement who have so consciously sought to embrace the universalistic component of Judaism and to uh, cultivate it, I want to ask you, as a human being, as a, as a citizen, as a Jew, does universalism even exist? Does, is it something that we can actually work with? Is there, any, is there any idea that in, indeed is shared by all of humanity at all in the first place? Why do you think there's such a problem that people have with the two? You, you present it as a given already. Why is that? I think that Judaism as a civilization has been willing to embrace particularism more affirmatively. And I think Christianity is fundamentally a response to that and an effort to shift the balance in favor of universalism. And I think that we consciously resisted that or reasserted particularism as a response to that. How interesting. And I think we still do it. And I think we do it for good reason. And I'm of that party. I am a partisan in this conflict. You're or, a partisan on what side? Uh, on the side of particularism. I think all progressivism and liberalism is fundamentally particularistic. And I think all universalism is a violence to progressivism and liberalism. So, so I, I've, I've laid yeah. my cards out. Good for you. I think universalism is a lie. Well, I'll play my card then. All right. All right. I think it depends where you start. First of all, let's still look at the Jewish calendar, just so we have things in perspective. Okay. I don't want to think that universalism is something I came up with yesterday. If you look at the Jewish calendar, you find that six months apart, you have the two great holidays. You have Pesach in the spring, and you have what we call the high holidays in the autumn, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. My studies, I mean, I just finished the last volume of these eight-volume series in the High Holy Days, and I had no idea how deeply it went until I did, did this research. But I can now say absolutely, without any doubt, completely affirmatively, that uh, Pesach is the particularistic, high, uh, particularistic holidays. You know, that was the original 
new year. Right. But the fact is we end up calling the new year, the new year in the fall, which is absolutely universalistic. Absolutely. I mean, the Mishnah says, all who come into the world stand before God. For example, we say, Hayom Harat Olam. It's when the universe Birth was of created, the, the Elenu, which is all about the. Yes, the Elenu is very. That comes from Rosh Hashanah, on and on and on. I can see nothing it's, but universalism. These are all universalistic. They are, they, they're not universalist, though. They're, they claim universalism, which is different. What they are is impositional, especially the Elenu. We look forward to a day when the world agrees with us. Well, that's not universalist, that's colonial. You're right about that. I don't. I don't deny that. However, I don't know it. First of all, we don't know what the original Elenu okay, was altogether. Fine, so, right, yeah. We only know what's happened to it over the Middle Ages. We know that the prayer comes early on. That yeah. we know, right? Now, when people said that they got to become like us, right? To some extent, you're right about that. That's the Bible, for example. Mm. We all know that. And to some extent, it's the rabbis. But on the other hand, I don't anticipate that they meant exactly like us. They believed that God had a covenant with other peoples, for example. They had no objection to Noahides, as they call them. They thought God had covenants with Jews and covenants with other people. The only thing is there were limits to what the covenant that God would make. God would not make a covenant if that involved certain cruelties and on and on and on. Or polytheism. Yes, that's correct. So I really understand the kind of universalism that's involved as a universalism with, however, limits. Not everything goes. What do I mean by universalism? I want to say that all religion, all great religion, and this is what makes them great, and that's why they last. All great religion is a response to what I call the human condition. All human beings are in this world with two things that other species, I think, don't have. The first, I think, is consciousness of who we are. The squirrels in my backyard don't stop for a minute and say, what is it like to be a squirrel? And should mm -hmm. I really, you know? And maybe right. they don't worry about that. They just eat the bird food so and the birds don't get the it. Dogs, That's right? it, yeah? We, however, have consciousness of who we are. We make up a story of who we are. We want a bigger story, all right? That consciousness leads us to limits, limits of understanding, limits of our life, limits of what we can do, limits of ending evil. In and the, the desire to break through those limits. Uh, and the desire. That's the universal human condition. And secondly, as along with consciousness comes conscience. So we are the only ones who say, that's wrong. Not that it's hurting me, that's just wrong. It may not be hurting me at all, but I'll draw the line, you went too far, and on and on and on. So I think there are certain things that human beings do. So the limits themselves are not universalist, but the desire, the appreciation for the, the search for limits is. That's correct. I actually think there are three rhetorics that human beings use and other people don't. It separates us from animals. First of all, there's limit thinking. We're the only ones who set the limits, you know? I like to tell a story about, the, about an animal running through the jungle, uh, a gazelle, and the lion kills the gazelle and Mrs. Gazelle's back at her lair, you know, and her husband doesn't come home. There's a lot of traffic. She knows. Where is he? She goes out, finds him. He's dead. Here's what's different. She, she mourns just like we would mourn. But what's different is she doesn't write a book on the subject. She doesn't write a book called, you know, Why Bad Things Happen to Good Gazelles, right? <laughs> she doesn't have the sense that there's bad things that happen to the good people. She just feels what she feels. We, though, have that limit. Okay, but doesn't it get down? That's great. I, I'm with you. Thus far, we agree. Here's the bone I want to pick. By and large, okay, so you've established a kind of universalism which is unobjectionable. I get it. But in fact, when people speak about universalism, what they really mean, by and large, is they're talking about the universalism of their specific limits. And they're saying, all human beings... Got it. And, and what I'm arguing is the following. When you recognize that the specific limits 
that you want to claim when you recognize that they are in fact particularistic no matter what you call them. That the minute you recognize they are particularistic, what you're doing to the other is you're saying implicitly, your limits are yours, yes. and I respect them. And that the, the mere recognition is a kind of respect, okay. at least a minimal respect. Yeah. And that, that is that is a particularist impulse, which is that which applies to me does not apply to you. Therefore, I am I am compelled to deal with at least you on your terms with your limits. That necessity, that 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 simple practical requirement. And that makes the universalism particularism in its essence? It, it, it makes all universalism a lie, and in fact, merely an expression yeah, of particular. No, I disagree. But, it's, but, it, but it makes, the problem with universalism is its pretense to being universalistic. The minute you pull back and you realize that these limits, which you thought were universalist, but were in fact just yours, that forces you to confront the other in a much more humane way. Because it forces you to recognize the other's limits as their own limits, their own production. So, so what I'm saying is that it is illiberal of Judaism to impose, to, to say that the Noahide laws are so great, but then to point out that they don't apply to polytheists. That's an illiberal thing. And so in my Judaism, I assert very, yeah, I very happily, I celebrate my monotheism. And, and I celebrate the principle of Noahide laws, which allows for covenants between yeah, other yeah. peoples. But I draw the line at the polytheistic part. All I right, say, fair enough. I say, uh, he has, God, I said he, bad, bad me. God okay. has covenants with polytheists as well. And yeah, there right. I become more reformed than Jewish. The truth of the matter is I'm open to that argument. Okay. I think that as time goes on, we have different understanding of humanity and a different understanding of the way people frame even the universalistic urge to understand their condition. So I think that's an ongoing discovery that we have. I have no problem with that at all. I do want to say, however, that if you take your position to its ultimate extreme, you will find that there's no such thing as a group. There's no such thing as, uh, as, as more than me. It's a solipsism. No, it's a joke. Because ultimately, because ultimately all you know is what you know. That's, and so then you have to deal with no, because No, because my, my system allows for a kind of Lockean acquiescence or accession to a, a system where you, where you choose to associate with. When you are a member of a group, you're signing on to the boundaries and the limits that that group has set for itself, as Jews do, especially right. increasingly. It's a, it's a choice. Yeah. And so, so, of course, there are groups. It's just that I recognize other groups. I recognize their legitimacy, their divinity, their covenantal relationship to the Creator. And I'm willing to deal with them on their terms rather than to impose some monotheistic thing, even though the, the mere logic of monotheism is intrinsically universalist. And, you know. Two things. First of all, it might be I'd go with you there. The question is not whether polytheism is polytheism. Throughout the Middle Ages, look, this is your field, not mine. Yeah, no, I don't. But throughout the Middle Ages, throughout the Middle Ages, you have Jews discovering that actually Christians aren't such polytheists, actually. Well, actually, it's not that. It's that they recognize that they don't think they're polytheists, and they're willing to deal with them as monotheists on, uh, with that fiction shared for the purposes of being able to buy food from them. It's, well, let me let me try a different tack. Okay, all right. All right, let me try a different tack. I'd like to say that there are three ways that we think. One I said was limits. I've talked about that already. Yeah. The second way in which we think is truths. We okay, are right. we're hardwired to say true or false, true or false, true or false. Right. The third way, however, has to do with aesthetics. Now, aesthetics it gets the bad rap. Uh -huh. That's only art. Right, you right, know? right, right. We all got a sweatshirt with Beethoven looking like a madman. You know, we love the idea of artists, but they're crazy, right? They belong in they're bohemians, right. so they're fine. <laughs> but you wouldn't want your, to marry one. So actually, I want to say that we have moved through three stages. 
I think that the first stage, for Jews anyway, yeah. the first stage for Jews was we emphasized limits. And that's why we had a limit literature, the Talmud and law and halakha. halakha. By the 19th century, I think, Reform Judaism, the reason it was a revolution, it was a revolution away from limit thinking, and it was a response to, to science and the Enlightenment, and out came truth thinking. And so Reform Judaism redid worship, for example, not to worry about how you do it, the halakha, but to worry about what does the preacher say? And what are the truths of the prayer book? What are the grand truths? I mean, they got rid of bar mitzvah and they put in confirmation because uh -huh. they wanted everybody to say, these are the truths of Judaism, right. Shema Yisrael. That became our big truth. Stand for the Shema, sit down for the Amida. Crazy. But that's because <laughs> they, wanted, they wanted truths. Uh -huh. Now, here's the thing. Both truths and uh, limits are essentially zero-sum games. It's either true or it's that's false. Right. Either it's right or it's wrong. Now, I do think that ethics is objective. I'm not a relativist. I do think some things are true and some things are false. Don't try jumping into the Grand Canyon. You will discover that actually it kills you. So some things are true and some things are false. But what we have discovered is part of the human condition is to frame things in the third rhetoric, the third language, and that is the language of meaning. We are now living in an era where meaning is what counts. So meaning doesn't mean then everything goes. Right, right. I don't mean that at all. I can t talk about that more if you want to. But for our purposes, I want to give you a grand uh, model of what I think religion is all about. I want to say that we should think of religion as, a, as an art gallery. And all the great religions have rooms. And some of the not great ones have smaller rooms, no doubt. <laughs> but at the moment, um, I, I visit the Christian room and the Muslim room and, the, and, the, and so on. I'm in my own room. You're born into your room. And you're raised in your room, and it's, it's home, it's familiar to you. You spend your life, at least if you're serious about it, you spend your life redecorating. So in fact, what we do is we change the furniture, we, we, we put different art in the walls, but it all comes out Jewish. And then, of course, there are different Jews in the room. Right. So I don't happen to like the way the Orthodox guys over there are doing their, their wall. But on the other hand, they're, they're Jews. Still I in the room. You I meet them, room. you know. Right, right. I think and they're wrong, but okay. I really think they shouldn't all be black and white, whatever it is. Now, sometimes I get into big fights with them. I, say, I want my room to look good. Right, right, right. Sometimes I go out into the hall, and I meet other people. And they say, oh, gee, you got a room too? Uh -huh. And I ask them, what are you doing in your room? And they say, I'll show you. And I go and I look at it. Now, if you are dealing with a, with a truth question, I walk into their room and I say, all wrong. It's all right. If I'm dealing even with an ethics question, though we might share some things, ultimately I have to say, does your ethics agree with my ethics? If not, you're wrong. But when it comes to the, to, the, to the decoration and when it comes to the aesthetic, how we live our lives, that is, the meaning that we find in life, I can see that other religions have a different rhetoric, a different, a different design pattern, a different artistry. But I learn to appreciate it. And I say, oh, that's what you do. That's a beautiful image. And you can see in their efforts the same effort as you. That's right. All we have is our room. If, we, if all we have is our room, then the truth of the matter is it's all particularism. But insofar as we share the larger building and we see that other people are doing the same sort of thing, then we discover that we are all in the human condition, discovering our deepest form of our identity. And we do it our way, they do it their way. Once in a while we borrow things. I kind of like the way they do it, yeah, you know. Right, right. And later on, someone visits the museum, they say, well, I know where you got that.
And in knowing that, you connect with the other person across that's right. something in common. That's Fair exactly enough. right. Okay. I, I like it. It's I, all about I, the hallway. You it's know, it's all right, right. It's all the water cooler, man. It's all, it. It yeah, all the water cooler. It all boils down Love to it. the water cooler. Love it. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes, and whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. All right, I want to shift. I want to shift gears a little bit. Right. I want to thank you again for something you did that I found important and helpful. In a recent address, you articulated the anxiety about identity, identity formation, right. holding an identity, and, and, and our keen desire as Jews to pass on our identity, this thing that we love, this Jewish identity, whatever it is. And you proposed a visual. We have an art theme going in this conversation, which is great. And you proposed a visual language that I found very helpful. And it was the following. You said, you know, one thing that's irreducibly true in the modern world is that the vast majority of us have multiple facets toward our identity. You're a parent. You're a child. You're, right. you're a student. You're an athlete. My son's a wrestler. It's a yeah. big deal. You know, it takes a lot of his time. And his group formation around the team. And, and all of us have these multiple identities. And there is an anxious way to approach that multiplicity. And the anxious way promotes a visual of fracturing. Because all of these pieces seem to be jostling and uh, maybe broken off from one another. But you offer another, another perspective, which is to view this multiplicity as layered. I do think it poses a challenge. The challenge is that if you're going to say it's layered, you're implying a hierarchy. Oh, you, very nice. If you do that, you risk creating other anxieties in, in imposing a hierarchy. Nevertheless, layered also has a, a kind of fertility to it, that things grow up through the layers, and the layers depend on one another, and they build on one another. There's all kinds of constructive images that emerge from that, and I like it, and I want you to take it, and I want you mm. to tell me if, nice. we, if we want a foundational layer to be Jewish. Yeah. I want to say that it's not entirely true that I think fracture is wrong. We do live in an age of fractured identity. Before, I said that I think we have come to the end of ethnic Judaism. Mm -hmm. There's no question in my mind about that. And a lot of people over a certain age fight that tooth and nail and loathe when I say that to them. By the way, the fight probably comes from the fact that the shift that you're articulating in saying that we're post-ethnic yes. is really recent. Yes. So there's a lot of us, me included, yeah. who, who still experience the ethnic experience. So, yeah. so it's a living machloket. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a living argument. It's not just an intellectual one. So I, I imagine that that accounts for a lot of the resistance you Yes, it does. When I say, by the way, that we're, we're post-ethnic, some people misunderstand me. It's not that I'm post-Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Ethnic comes from ethnos, the Greek, as you right, know. Right. And if you're talking about peoplehood, I, I'm in favor of Jewish peoplehood. I think that's part of what I decorate my room with. 
Uh-huh. Uh, so and the people in my room, I mean, they're my right, people, right, the obviously. People yeah. So I, I don't deny that. And obviously, I think there are responsibilities on me as a Jew to other Jews. So that let's just just accept that. I mean by ethnic something else. I mean the kind of ethnicity by which we do what we do because of nostalgia for the old world. Right, right. We do what we do because that's just what Jews do. Actually, a lot of Jews don't do it. <laughs> right. uh, we do what we do because we're not like them. They're the bad guys. Right. I, that's what I don't like. Right. Ultimately, we live in an era in which we need a new, a new rationale for what we're doing. The big question is, why are you Jewish? That's the big question. And you know where I got that first? I got that in Los Angeles. I was doing a program for Federation 25 years ago. And all these Federation people were in the room, and I gave them all this stuff on spirituality. And I said, do you have any questions? I was talking for two straight days, Saturday <laughs> night, question time. And I say, I'm not going to give another lecture until I hear, what do you think? One hand goes up, another hand goes up. They say, what do you think of Israel? What do you think? I say, wait a second, I didn't talk about that. But that's all they wanted to know. Well, hand goes up in the back, and it's a young woman. She puts her hand up. She's 25 years younger than everybody else, and she says to me, I want to know why be Jewish. That's the only question I worry about. And I looked at her, and I knew she was on to something. Mm -hmm. And the, you know what? The rest of the people knew her like her parents. And they all yelled at her, basically, right, right. and said, how dare you? How You're you a heretic. Right, right, right. All right, she was on to something. Yeah, now she's the one who's grown up, and those people are past their prime, if not gone. And so the question really is, what's the rationale for being Jewish altogether? Now, if that's the real big question, the question then becomes, what is Judaism in a post-ethnic era? So for a long time, I said it was spirituality. And when I founded Synagogue 2000, I used to say, we have moved from ethnicity to spirituality. People loved it. They were all looking for spirituality. I knew that. But I now realize I was only partly right. Spirituality is actually uh, part and parcel of the deeper search for identity. It's a kind of identity formation. And spirituality describes being in touch with a moreness to the universe. You know, M-O-R-E-N-E-S-S, -S, yeah. something more to the universe. I think now we're in the age of a fractured identity. When you're not an ethic anymore, you really are a man or woman of the world, and you can do whatever you want. So now I want to think of how we look for identity, and that's where I like to think of it as layered. Okay. The various kinds of our identity are the surface identities, like wrestling. And you know, I'm a Jew. I'm a wrestler. I'm a husband. I'm a father. Right. You know, I'm also a sometime appreciator of Van Gogh, whatever. Right, right. Those are all the fractured parts of me, because we all know what I'm going to do tonight. Am I going to stay with my kid? Am I going to go to the synagogue? Am I going to watch right. the Van Gogh exhibit? Maybe I'll go wrestle. So all of that is, is the fractured part. But beneath it all. It seems to me there, there are different layers. So look at it this way. First of all, there's the most, there's the most surface layer where you're in my class. I, I say, Josh Holly, say here. That's who you are. Or a little below that, there's all the numbers that make you who you are, the stuff they steal when they steal your identity. You know? <laughs> I got all my passwords, I got numbers of my social security number. That's driving me nuts. I'm a numbered person. I got too many numbers. Right, right. That's my identity, though. You know, well, right. the real one, two, three, eight, Those nine, seven. Those numbers add up, right? They, they add up. That's great. Oh, that's so ugly. I'm going to use that someday. <laughs> so that's a little layer below it. Since we are looking to matter in the world, I go back to that we have consciousness of who we are and conscience, okay. which means we feel we need to amount to something. You should. There's something we think deeper that's calling us. Different languages that we use. So there are two philosophers that, that have appealed to me. One is uh, Charles Taylor, who I like to quote. 
And uh, Charles Taylor says that the deepest level of identity is the self in moral space. Even if you say you have no moral space, that's your moral space. Right, right. So the deepest level is when we say, here I stand. This is me. This is the essence. I mean, I can do wrestling today, but I can become a boxer tomorrow or turn them both of them because I decide it's violent and decide instead I'll go and smell the flowers like Ferdinand the Bull. That's fine, too. But that's changeable. But somehow or other, we feel that at your very essence, you should stand for something. You might grow in it. But you feel that, that you've got to stand for something. They say that Martin Luther said, here I stand. If he said it, it's, I can't say I said it first. <laughs> I'm sure lots of people said it. Right. But I want to say, here I stand. That's the essence. The other lovely image is Daniel Dennett, the philosopher. He says, the self must be at the center of narrative gravity. I love that. That's beautiful. We have a story about who we are. And we get that story, by the way, from the grand story of our room. And then we, because we meet people in the hall, we, we right. factor in the world. On the day we die, when we think of what our eulogy is going to be, we hope someone will say we stood for something profound, deep, something mattered to us. It wasn't just, hey, you know, whatever. And, and secondly, we're part of something big. And that's the that's the moral that's the the narrative gravity that that we think we're we want to write ourselves into. Yeah, that we write ourselves into it. That's right. So I I don't see that that's a hierarchy, by the way. Uh, all the these things the, exist the, simultaneously. Well, well, you've, you've, but you've, I'm willing to say that's deeper and more important. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. that's what I meant by hierarchy. I guess you're right. If that's what, you know, there's a hierarchy. You know, ever since feminism has a bad connotation. Well, no, hierarchy to it. definitely has bad connotations. I, I don't mean, I, but I mean it neutrally. I mean, then I'm priority. Yeah, then I agree with you. I think yeah. people look. Some people don't have food and drink, and they're they're being beaten to death by their their members of their family, or they're right. persecuted, or something like that. They don't have the luxury to sit around thinking, what will I be, what, is, what matters. They're just lucky to live from day to day. But if you're fortunate enough as we are, we've been graced with this kind of moment in history and our place in the world, we get to ask the deeper questions, uh, which I well, think is, is and, universal. And if, if I may push back, your whole point about that which is universally human is that, yes, the poor person who is struggling just to survive is also thinking about these things. They they care about what they said. They they, 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 they have do, a consciousness. Yes, and yes, they're suffering. Yes. We should be humbled by our abundance right. and our kind of yeah. the absurdity of well, our Well, you privilege. have a point there. But but people are people and you're they, right they about care. that. I should be I should they stand sacrifice corrected. for their children. They they you know what? I stand corrected. I do. You're right. I guess what I meant to say Let's is... Let's end the interview we now. Have the Hold on. We, not, <laughs> I guess what I meant is that we have the luxury to think about it and, and, and develop a whole yes, yeah, theory yeah, right, about right, the right, thing. Right, right. And they don't, they, don't, you know, they don't have to do that. No, no, they, absolutely. They, we but do, we yeah, are, but we it are, is human. There is an absurdity to our... So now religion. if you just said that, how can you not believe in universalism? No, it's not. The, okay, so I also agreed with you, and, and I'm willing to concede. I do think that the human condition has universal yeah. qualities. I think that universal, rather than a universality of our humanity, I bridle at universalism, that as a philosophy that we can say that that which is my limit is also your limit, because my limit is so obviously universal. Right. I'm, obviously, there's only one God. And we Jews, I think it is incumbent upon us from a sociological and historical perspective to be sensitive to this and to, to rally for particularism as a moral good, which is to say, how dare you? How dare you tell me where the boundaries are? You who think only because you don't have your ideas challenged everywhere you look every day? You, you have indulged in the fantasy that just because you're not challenged, it is therefore universal? 
Shame on you. <laughs> we who know what it is like to exist in a world where we don't look in the mirror all the time, but where we have to look across a gap and see that there is another because we are so few. Because statistically, we can't go through our day with the, with the facile assumption that that which we believe is universal. We who live in an enlightenment society where we can do that exercise and then yell out, I'm different, and still enjoy the absurd abundance of which you spoke before, of our modern lives. If we have both of those things, the ability to experience otherness and the luxury of not suffering for it, then we have to be a voice that says the universal claim is an intrinsically false claim and that value and goodness does not come from the shared universalist of which is, is in fact just me saying that my good is a universal good, but rather the seeing of the other on their terms and then accepting the obligation to live productively with that other. It might be that we are just coming at it with different beginning points because it's not as if I disagree with you in your final formation, mm. but even as you speak it, it seems to me you're speaking like a, like a universalist. You're making the universalist claim that every people would make about their own identity. What you just said now, you speak it as a Jew, but I can imagine in the room where the Christians are, some good Christian liberal friend of mine is saying the same thing. If, therefore, you're saying the same thing that that person's saying, then the very claim that we live our identities through our particularisms is a universal claim. So it all depends how you look at it. All right. I'd like to go back to prayer, if I can, for yeah, a minute, please, because please. Uh, w w where we are now in the conversation is whether you consider it coming at it from a particularistic position or whether you consider the realization that we are all human beings in a human condition. We have reached the point where we realize that in this stage in history, we've moved from a zero-sum game as Jews. Where yes. We're not just talking about, oh, I'm right and you're wrong, but we're trying to appreciate the other in your yes. language. And we therefore are, are more and more engaged in what it is to be human and the human condition. So one of the things I want to say about prayer is that prayer, I think, is a level of discourse that does justice to the human condition. When you enter the prayer room, synagogue, or any other prayer space, you can't expect the same sort of rhetoric or the same kind of discourse that you get elsewhere. Now, in fact, I tell my students that what's really important is to raise the level of discourse. And that's not, that's not just papering over something. When people are having an argument, sometimes you can raise the level of discourse, and it takes on a higher understanding of what we're all about. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you an example, all right? I mentioned to you earlier I'm thinking about retiring. And so people say to me things like, why are you retiring? When are you going to retire? You know, all that kind right, of thing. Right, right, right. And those are all the questions that are good questions. Right. So my first answers ought to be something like, well, you know, I'm tired of what I'm doing. I mean, no, I'm not. Or I'm trying to think of all the answers somebody right. could give, you know. Or, well, I want to travel the world and see the Taj Mahal or whatever it is. But actually, I found myself saying, uh, to my surprise, actually, I found myself saying to a friend when he asked me, uh, why are you retiring? I said, I think God is not done with me yet. Mm. And the minute I said it, I believed it. Now, it's not as if I believed it before I said it. Mm. It's not as if I had this concept of God who was pulling the strings right, and right, was saying, right. come on over here, you got something to do over here. It's not, I don't believe that for a minute. But I, the, the question of what to do with my life at this stage is so... Uh, so profound, 
when I recognize I have limited years to go, God willing, it'll be more than, yeah, 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 than a few, but you don't know at, my, at this stage. People I know are dying and going to the hospital and then they're no longer what they were and you realize, who knows? Mm. So it has this profound importance to me and without knowing it, there bubbled up inside mm. me a God statement. And when I said it, I believed it in the same sense that I believe any great work, any great poetic line. In the same way I believe anything, you talked about Churchill before, any one of those great statements. Now, it's not as if you believe literally the things right. that some of those people right. say, but when they say it, a great poet talks, you nod mm -hmm. and you say, yeah, that's what it is. It's strong. Prayer is that kind that. of poetry. So I go to pray because I find a level of discourse that does justice to the deepest aspirations of the human condition. And that's what prayer should give us. We should walk out of the prayer room nodding, as it were, and saying, uh, oh yeah, 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 like we re read a great poem, but more than just read it, we made it up. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? We, right, right, right. Yeah, we because of the way we all yeah, did yeah, it together. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to thank you for everything you've done to advance exactly that, and particularly for this super fun, extremely interesting I conversation. It. I loved it. Just a pleasure. It's an honor. Thanks for inviting thank me. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.